okay, priorities or a literal um, location? Yeah, I think it's a combination, but it is about where they're where they're dwelling. So Christianity needs to be lived anywhere, but I think it's going to be different if you're a Christian in Las Vegas versus a Christian in Alabama. There's just going to be some differences. And here's the thing: God knows where we dwell. Um, I was talking to Kevin about this last week, and he said something that I thought was I thought was profound and important. He says, you know, you have these places, and here, look at verse 13. Um, he says, you dwell where? Where do they dwell? Satan's throne is. Kevin and I were talking about it, and he said, yeah, but all places like that need somebody there. And that's important, right? We think about dangerous places, or we sometimes say to ourselves, I would never go there where somebody's got to go. They dwell where Satan's throne is, but the interesting thing is there's still a church, even where Satan's throne is. So they're in Pergamum. What does Jesus mean, or what do you think Jesus means by you dwell in the place where Satan's throne is? What is that all about, where they live? What does it mean that they dwell or live where Satan's throne is? And that same thing is going to come up at the end of verse 13. Antipas was killed where Satan dwells. What do you think that involves? Okay, heavy persecution and temptation for sure. What else? If Jesus said you, you live and you work right where Satan's throne is. It's a wicked place. It's a wicked place. Yes, yeah, a bad place. Here's some information about Pergamum that might be helpful. Um, when Jesus says this, he's probably saying he refers to, referring to Pergamum. They were a center of Roman government and pagan religion in Asia Minor. In fact, they were the first city in Asia Minor to build a temple to a Roman ruler. They built it to Augustus. And it was the capital of the whole area for the cult of the emperor. So the whole book of Revelation is about don't get involved in, in the imperial court or emperor worship. But Pergamum, they kind of led the way with this. Um, they were center of pagan cults. For example, they worshiped the god of Sclepius, and that's the god of healing. And you probably have seen something like this. There's a variation of this. You go to a doctor's office, you see the little snake wrapped around the, the whole, what's the The stab, there you go. The stab. It was the God of healing in the ancient world, and we kind of borrowed some of that. I'm not telling you not to go to the doctor because you'll be where Satan's throne is. Go to the doctor, but for them, it was pagan and idolatrous worship, and that was at the seat of Pergamum. And so you imagine it'd be difficult to be a Christian there. Asclepius was the serpent god of healing, prominent in Pergamum, and the symbol became one of the emblems of the city, and this may have facilitated what John says when he's saying, I know where you're working. You're working right where Satan's throne is. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Hold your hand in Revelation and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And when somebody gets there, just read verse 4. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4. The God of this age blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So, yeah, in that section, Paul's talking about the gospel. He starts in chapter 3, and it's about making things clear. But notice what he calls the devil in chapter 4 and verse 4. The God, lowercase g, God of this world. Jesus is going to use that same terminology, John 12, 30, 31, and John 14, 31. We sing a song. This is my father's what? True or false? True. Now, is this Satan's world too? In what sense is it the devil's world too? Not by creation. When we sing the song, it is my father's world, and the lyrics go along with this, we mean God is, he has authority over the world by virtue of his creation. He runs the world. But this is Satan's world. He's the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, by his influence and by the wickedness that is rampant in our world as a result of the fall. And so the church at Pergamum, they're going to do their work, but they've got to do it right where Satan dwells, where his seat is, and that makes it difficult. There were two types, of, two types of governors in the first century world. 
some governors in certain places, they didn't have the right to execution. They couldn't harm anybody or do anything. But other governors could. They could execute with the sword if they wanted to, and Pergamum was the second kind. The governor in Pergamum, if he wanted to, could execute people at will, even Christians that didn't worship Caesar or the emperor. And it's interesting that Jesus says in Pergamum, I'm the one with the sword. He introduces himself with that background of Isaiah 49 and verse 2. All of these introductions at the beginning of these letters are purposeful. And Jesus says, don't fear the sword in Pergamum. I'm the one with the sharp two-edged sword. And it comes out of my mouth, and you don't have to bow before them. Russell, did you have your hand up? I was going to say, Satan's fire is going to be bound to this world, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if he's going to exercise his fire, he's got to do it right now with us because he's going to be destroyed when all, all of us and the world's destroyed in the final day anyway. Yeah, so the devil's power is limited. Romans 16, 20, Paul says, God will crush Satan under your feet shortly. And Hebrews 2, 17 and 18, or really starting verse 14, says he's already destroyed some in some way. The devil is defeated because of what Jesus did on the cross, but his his power is limited. And so we need to appreciate that. And that's what these Christians need to realize. Now look at verse 13. You work where Satan's throne is, and you remain faithful. You didn't deny my name, even in the days when Antipas, my faithful witness or martyr, was killed. What do you know about Antipas? And who, who is that? What do we know about him? I think this was on the sheet from last week. I said, how many times does his name appear in the New Testament? What did y'all find on that? How many times? This is easy math, by the way. One. Yeah, that's right. One time. So we don't know anything about Antipas outside of what the Bible tells us here. But what do we find written here in Revelation 2 and verse 13 about him? He was what? Faithful and? A witness or a martyr, he was, that means he was killed for the faith. So newer translations go with my faithful witness, King James, New King James family. I think they have the martyr. So this man was killed for being a Christian. He was willing to die for his faith. We don't know anything else about it. I think this is important because we sometimes want prominence. We may feel, again, like we're overlooked. But the book of Revelation teaches Jesus not only knows his churches, congregations, but he knows individuals. Nobody else knows Antipas. Jesus says, when he died, I was paying attention. In fact, when Stephen died, the whole New Testament says over and over again, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And yet when Stephen was being stoned, he says, he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. As if to say, when his disciple was being killed, Jesus stood up and paid attention. And he said, I see you suffering for my sake. That matters. That means something to me. And Antipas died. And maybe throughout the Roman world, nobody ever cared. Christians were killed all the time. Jesus took note of Antipas, and he says, you remain faithful. Revelation 14, 13 is a famous verse. We'll see it later. But John says, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. And Antipas' work followed him, and he was a faithful disciple. And Jesus points this out. What's Jesus' problem with this church? What does he have against them in verse 14? He says, he starts out with the good, which I think is important. Why does Jesus always start out with the good? Why do you think in all of these letters he starts out with the good? Now, Samaria doesn't have a problem with that. Philadelphia won't have a problem with that because it's all good for them. But why do you think Jesus leads off in these letters with the good? He starts off with the negative and puts people on the defensive. Okay. Softens the blow. Softens the blow. Now, if you start reading the letter addressed to your congregation and there's no positive at the beginning, uh oh, right? That means there's probably nothing coming. There is a church like that. We're going to read about them in a minute. Softens the blow. So Jesus starts out good. Hey, 
You worked in a hard place, but you haven't denied me. You're not ashamed. I'm proud of that. Hey, Antipas died. Christians start dying. Even then, in a time when you would have said, oh, they're killing Christians. I might want to back up. You haven't denied my name. I think that's great. But look at verse 14. I've got a few things against you, and you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balaam to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Okay, first class, let's just go back, do a review. What's the most important tool in our toolbox to understand the book of Revelation? A knowledge of the what? Old Testament. All right, so who is Balaam? Who is that? Okay, he's a prophet from the Old Testament. What book? Not in. <laughs> Numbers, yes. Yeah. So Balaam's story is in Numbers chapters 22 through 25. Interesting guy, probably the only person in the Old Testament that's called a prophet that's not an Israelite. Numbers 22 to 25, he's hired by a man named Balak, who is a prophet from Mo, uh, king of Moab, and he says, hey, I want you to curse the Israelites. And he kind of waffles on this, but eventually, every time he tries to curse them, God tells him to pronounce a what? A blessing until, go to Numbers 25. This is how he finally gets the children of Israel to stumble. And sometimes it's referred to as the occasion of Peor, but there's some idolatrous worship and it involves some fornication. And then we'll make the tie back to Revelation. But here it is, Numbers 25, 1 through 9. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to war with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and they bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to the Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people, hang them in the sun before the Lord, and the fierce anger, uh, the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those men who yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. And then you read about the heroic deeds of Phineas in verses six through nine. Go to Numbers 31, though, and notice verse 16. This is the background of this phrase, like you going into the era of Beth Balaam. Numbers 31, 16. Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So Balaam eventually, he goes along with Balaam and gets Israel to engage in fornication and also to practice idolatry. John writes a couple thousand years later, and he says, hey, some of you guys are going on with the teaching of Balaam. It probably wasn't this exact thing, but it had this in common with it. It was the spirit of compromise that said, hey, let's just be like these other people. Let's just kind of go along with them, and let's practice some of what they're practicing. And Jesus is saying, I don't want you doing that. You remember what happened in the Old Testament with Balaam and with the folks there? I want you to come out. I want you to be different. Paul gives a warning to the church at Corinth about this in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 8. He says, don't commit sexual immorality like some of them did, and 24,000 died in one day. And Jesus is warning the church here, I don't want you to do this. They practiced idolatry and sexual immorality. That's Revelation 2 and verse 14. And then in Revelation 2, 15, there are some there that hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So this is just spiritual adultery. This was true in the Old Testament. I think it's true about the churches in Revelation. When you read about idolatrous worship and all of that, especially in the Old Testament, but I think it's true with the seven churches, there was this idea of syncretism. Do you know what that is? Anybody know what that is? Syncretism? Let's just use a cheaper word. Mixing, right? People would mix together. And sometimes Israel, they never dumped Yahweh in the Old Testament, but they didn't mind adding a little Baal or a little Asherah to it and just kind of mixing them along. And these churches, they don't just want to quit Christianity altogether, but 
we do live in a culture where, hey, sometimes people practice the deeds of the Nicolaitans, or hey, a little, a little sacrifice to Caesar, and they kind of want to mix. And Jesus is saying, you've got to get rid of the spirit of compromise. Russell? They're what we call Maybe so, yeah. Want to just go along to get along, and Jesus is saying, you can't do it. Now, what's going to happen to them if they don't repent? What does Jesus say in verse 16? He will do what? Yeah, he says, if you don't repent, I'll come to you soon. And he's going to war with them with what? The sword of his mouth. We don't have time to do this, but write this reference down. This is interesting. Jesus picks his phrase purposefully. Numbers 22, 23. Numbers 22, 31. It's interesting. You remember Balaam? He's going. God said, I don't want you to go. He keeps begging. God says, all right, you can go. Who talks to Balaam? Numbers 22. Is what? Donkey, I've got a friend that preaches a sermon based on that. Look who's talking now in Numbers 22. But here's the thing. In that verse, when Balaam sees the donkey, when Balaam doesn't see the donkey does, you remember what the angel says? I almost killed you with the sword. And Jesus picks up that same terminology and he says, if you give in to the doctrine of Balaam, I'll fight you with the sword in my mouth. Just like I was going to destroy Balaam in Numbers 22 and verse 31, I'll destroy you with the sword in my mouth. And so he's telling them, I want you to repent. If they overcome, though, he says, I'll give you hidden manna. That's going back to Exodus 16 and the blessing that they would have. And then, of course, this white stone, which was a vote of confidence in their world of, hey, God's going to bless you and praise them if they did that. So Jesus has something held out for them. Let me ask a question about these things at the end of each of the letters to the churches. Look at Revelation 2 and notice verse, verse 7. Look at Revelation 2, 7. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And then if you go down to Revelation 2, 11, it says the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And then Revelation 2, 17, the one we just read, he says, I'll give him a new name, hidden manna, the white stone. Are these different rewards for each churches? What do you think? Why does Jesus say something different to each church? Is each church getting something different? What do all of these phrases symbolize that? The church that overcomes is going to receive. What are they going to give? Summarize it. If they overcome, they'll give what? Somebody said it. What is it? A reward. Eternal life. And Jesus just uses different ways to say it to each church. To bring it to their knowledge and to heighten it for them in different ways. But they're all getting the same thing. And that is, if they overcome, they'll be affiliated with Jesus instead of the Roman Empire. They'll be justified by him. And they'll enjoy an eternal reward. Okay. Yeah, similar to the attitudes. All right, now let's look at Thyatira, the corrupt church. Revelation 2, 18 through 29. To the angel of the church of Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. And behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her words. I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your words. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. 
the one who conquers and who keeps my works unto the end. To him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule with them with a rod of iron as if when an earthen pot is broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay. Jesus reveals himself to the church at Thyatira as the one with the flaming fire for his eyes and feet like burnished bronze. Thyatira was 40 miles southwest of Pergamum, a smaller city, and they were a place with abundant crops and known for their purple dye. Who was from Thyatira in the New Testament? Book of Acts? Lydia. And she was a seller of what? Purple. Yeah, so a wealthy city. What does Jesus know about them? What does he say in verse 19? List some of the things that Jesus mentions about them. First thing in verse 19, he says, I know your what? Your works, what else? Your love and your service. There we go. So Jesus knows some of the things that they're doing, and he's taking note of that. Um, their works, their service, their patient endurance, and there's one more thing in verse 19. What does he say at the end? What does that mean? Your latter works exceed the first. What does that mean about them? They're growing. Ron says they're growing. They're getting better. That's right. You know this verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Be steadfast, unmoved, always, what's the rest? Abounding in the work. That's this church. They were faithful. They did great things before, but Jesus says, hey, your latter works, I'll see the first. At the end of our lives, every one of us wants that to be said of us. You might be doing great right now, but you're not what you used to be, and you should also be saying, I'm not what I'm becoming, and I will be. I want my lot of works to exceed the first, whatever I did before, and that might change and vary as our bodies age and the way we serve and function might be different, but in the end, we want our latter works to exceed the first, always abounding. That 1 Corinthians 15, 58, that abounding means going beyond the bare minimum. Don't see in Christ, what can I do just to get by? What do I have to do so that I don't go to hell? Find a way to always abound, to go above and beyond, which meant a lot. What are these churches facing? Persecution, they could have just said, hey, it's enough for us to just hold our own. Hey, we haven't closed the door. At least we didn't go out of existence. Latter words exceed the first. And that's a challenge. Jesus has something against them in verse 29. And just like he did, or verse 20, excuse me, just like with the church at Pergamum, it's an Old Testament situation with them. Sorry that that's run off the screen. But first Kings, who does he say that they've given into? Verse 20, they tolerate a woman named who? Jezebel. Is she good or bad in the Bible? That's a pretty easy one. I thought I'd throw you an easy one. Yeah. You know, most people don't name their daughter Jezebel. We're looking for Bible names. It's like, why not? What is the name Jezebel associated with? Even if you've never read the Bible, even if you don't know these passages in her history in the Old Testament, when you hear Jezebel, what do you think? Her name is synonymous with what? Evil, corruption, wickedness. It's said about her husband Ahab in 1 Kings 16. He did evil, more evil than all the kings of Israel. And he married Jezebel. Her dad's name was Ephbaal. He was the king of the Sidonians. And she promoted wickedness and evil. One time Ahab came home, he was sad because Naboth wouldn't sell him his vineyard in 1 Kings 21. And she said, what are you crying about? No problem. We can take care of that. They killed Naboth and she gave him the vineyard. I mean, just corrupt and wicked and evil. The woman in this church in Thyatira was probably not named Jezebel, but they probably had a lot in common. They worked alike. What is common in the eras of Pergamum and Thyatira? What do they have in common? Both of these churches seem to be given into what? Idolatry and sexual morality. Those two sins. 
run from cover to cover in the Bible. In our world, it's time to try to put new outfits on. They don't change, though. The world's always saying, worship another God. And when you do that, it leads to you being able to do whatever you want sexually, as far as promiscuity or whatever you want to do to please yourself. They go hand in glove because the first thing God talks about in the Garden of Eden is, I made you, I'm your God, and here are the parameters for sexual activity. A man will be given to his wife, Genesis 2, 18 through 25, and the devil shows up in chapter 3. You don't have to listen to God, and he's been attacking us that same way ever since. You can fire God and get your own, and once you do, you're free to do whatever you want sexually. It's the problem in the church in Thyatira. They're giving into this sexual immorality and to worship and idols. Jesus says he gave her time to repent in verse 21, and she refuses to repent. Jesus is going to say this again in chapter 9 and verse 20 as well, but sometimes in the book of Revelation, it's said that people are being punished. And in Revelation 9 verse 20, they see the tribulation, they see the destruction, and yet they choose not to repent. The negative qualities that run parallel with Thyatira and Pergamum is this idea of compromise, just going along like Russell mentioned. Who are the folks in verse 24? And why is this important? Verse 24, it says, but to the rest of you and Thyatira. So you've got this church, and I don't know who this woman is and what her influence is all about, but she's come in and basically said, hey, you guys can engage in some of this pagan worship and idolatry, and Jesus really isn't going to be upset about it. Maybe she came in and said, hey, the grace of God covers it. It's all good. Don't worry about it. And most of the church seems to be going along with it. And so Jesus has a warning for them. And he says, hey, you've got to repent. You're going along with this woman. You're going to be destroyed with her in verse 22. But then who does he talk about in verse 24? Who is that? The ones that what? Not going along. Why is it important that we don't miss a verse like this, especially when you're talking about congregations as a whole? What does it teach us about Jesus' interaction with churches? There is a what in churches. There's a word, and I was going to talk about it in chapter 3, but since we're here now, we can talk about it. It's in the Old Testament a lot. It starts with an R. Remnant. That's right. And so, I don't know. If a church is not doing what the New Testament says, and it's blatant, I think people should try to put their best to be a good influence, and after they've done all that they could, they should probably try to worship in a place that's faithful and do the things that they should. But I think we should use some caution and sinking entire congregations and saying, well, everybody there is, because Jesus, I mean, if you were to ride by the church of Thyatira, you'd say, hey, they got Jezebel, she's up teaching Bible class, she's running the show, she's doing, and Jesus says, well, not everybody. Not everybody. That's not an excuse to go along and to just kind of compromise and go with the flow, but Jesus is going to do this twice in the letters, in these two letters, chapter two and chapter three. He's going to say, there are some people that are not going along with that, and I appreciate you. There might be a congregation that's not as sound or faithful as they should be, and you might think to yourself on occasion, I can't believe John's still going there. John's sounder than that. Doesn't he know the truth? And you might not know that he's there, she's there, for the purpose of trying to stand up against the error and trying to turn or right the ship. Not always successful. You might say, I couldn't do that. I wouldn't stay. I couldn't stand it. But you can't speak for everybody. And I know that's true because of what Jesus says here. Some of you just haven't gone along with it. You're in Thyatira. He doesn't tell them to move their membership, by the way. He's saying, hey, you can hold fast and make a difference. And you can do that. Now, I don't think we need to go on rescue missions and find the most left-wing church or right-wing church and say, I'm going to go be the few of Thyatira. Because it doesn't always work that way. But I am saying we should be careful about painting with broad strokes because there are faithful few in congregations that are not all they should be. And they're trying to resist the evil. And that's what Jesus highlights about this church. And we just should make sure that we don't miss it. Yep, go ahead. 
those things and more than what he says there at the end. He says, I will put on you no other burden. Why not? That's because they're there trying to do right. You've got enough going on already. He didn't say, hey, but you better be feeling more, you know what, you're opposing the false doctrine. Now you got it coming from both sides. Rome and within the congregation, they're probably saying you're sticks in the mud, you're just ultra conservative, you're worried about the wrong thing. And Jesus is saying, for you guys that are trying to hang in there, I've got nothing else to say to you. Just keep going. I lay on you know the burden. What does that remind you of? You remember Jesus, Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is what? Easy and? Jesus doesn't want to overwhelm anybody. Jesus doesn't want to overburden people. He wants to give us just enough to be faithful to him and do what he have us to do. Jesus concludes by saying, if they do this, he'll give them the bright morning star. He that has an ear, let it be. All right. Yeah, we'll do this. Let's just do the hearing and keeping the word in Revelation 2, 1 to 29, and then we'll go through chapter 3 a little quicker. But here are some of the takeaways from Revelation 2, 1 through 29. Number one, Jesus knows his church well. You see that in his address to the first four churches. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it's been reported to me by the house of Chloe. Jesus never has to say that. Nobody has to give Jesus a report or tell him anything. Jesus just says, I know your works. I know what's going on. And these letters tell us Jesus knows his church well. He's watching, observing, and we don't have to sound the trumpet about what we're doing because Jesus is watching when they have reward us. Here's number two. We need to be asking ourselves, in light of what we read in the first four letters, do we focus on what matters most and do we love like we should? Here's what I mean. The church at Ephesus, they love the truth, they love to defend the truth, but they've fallen out of love with Jesus. We just need to make sure that we keep this in focus, that we focus on what matters to Jesus. A lot of these letters, Jesus praises churches for opposing false doctrine. So I know that's right, and I know it's a right thing to do. But if that's all that we ever do, we're out of balance with it. I remember being a new Christian, and I just, I don't know, it just kind of became a hobby. It wasn't a, I'm not proud of this, but it became a hobby. Whenever December came around, just to slam people about, you know, December 25th not being in the Bible and all people worshiping. And Jesus would say about that, well, hey, okay, December 25th is not in the Bible. Romans 14 says people have the liberty, but more importantly than that, am I more, more focused on that than I am on, hey, people are thinking about Jesus. We might want to be pointing them to the right direction. Are we known more for, hey, we want to worship God enthusiastically and do the things God wants us to do, Ephesians 5, 19, Colossians 3, 16, or are those verses in our mind more about not using the instrument. As much as that's important, that wasn't Paul's focus when he initially wrote it. He was saying, hey, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, it'll bubble forth in song and praise and you'll make melody to God. We've got to oppose error, but if that's all we ever do, we become lopsided in our faith, and as a result of that, unsound. Alright, am I willing to suffer for you? The church at Smyrna suffered, and sometimes we need to make sure that we realize just because I'm a Christian, does not mean that I won't have it hard. In fact, sometimes being a Christian means that I'll have it hard. And we learn from the church, if we're going to hear well the letters in chapter 2, that I've got to be ready to suffer. Philippians 129, Paul says, to us is given in behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. And we need to be thinking about what we do if we have to suffer. Avoid compromising with the world. Some of these churches, Pergamum and Thyatira, they start compromising. And, um, I don't know. Sometimes Christians grew up in a context that they were considered to be more conservative. And maybe this is you that I'm talking to. Maybe you grew up in the church or in a congregation where you didn't hear a lot about grace. And there was a lot of hard and stern hellfire and brimstone. And all of a sudden, you 
you start reading the Bible, maybe you've heard some sermons, some lessons, some podcasts. You're like, hey, the Bible says a lot more about grace than I ever gave it credit for. God's more forgiving, kind, and gentle than I ever knew. That's great, but beware that in learning to embrace God and becoming this spiritually woke person to the grace and mercy of God, that you don't forget that you still have to oppose false doctrine, that truth still does matter, that there is right and wrong. Because people swing to the other extreme, and now you can't say sin around it. Now nobody's teaching error. Now it's all about the grace of God. Revelation keeps us balanced. Chapter 2 says, okay, don't get all caught up in rebuking error, but at the same time, just because you stumbled upon grace, it's always been in the Bible, but Jesus was full of what? Grace and truth. John 1, 14. You can't have Jesus without it. Okay, you got to have both. Don't compromise with the world. Don't get to the point where I'd never be like those people. They're just so wrapped. They want to boycott everything. They don't want to be engaged. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 still says we can't fall in love with the world and be Jesus' friend at the same time. And Revelation chapter 2 helps us out with that. And the last thing is Jesus wants us in these letters to listen well and live well. That's how you handle the book of Revelation properly, to listen to what Jesus says and then to live well as a result. We're going to do this at the end of every chapter because remember John says in chapter 1, verse 3, you'll be blessed if you hear this word and if you keep it. And this is how we can do that. All right, 15 minutes to do the last three churches, so buckle up. All right, chapter 3, 1 through 6. This is Sardis. So the angel of the church in Sardis, right? The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If not, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have a few names in Sardis. There it is again. I told you, we find this again, this remnant. People who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, next, Jesus approaches the church in Sardis. And he has some things to say about them. This introduction is much like the ones of the church in Ephesus, and they seem to have similar problems. What Jesus says to the church at Sardis is interesting, given the background of the city. And I just will share this with you. No city in Asia had a more splendid history in the past than Sardis. 700 years before John wrote this, she had been one of the greatest cities in the world. And at the same time, no city in Asia showed a contrast between past splendor and present decay of Sardis. Sardis had this great history, 700 years before John wrote, amazing city. But the city itself, not the church, the city of Sardis, continued to try to live in that past reputation. They were a sinking, soiled, and dying city by the time John writes. And if you went up to anybody in Sardis in the first century, you know what they would say? Oh, back in the day, 700 years ago. And it's ironic. The church was the same way. What does Jesus know about the church at Sardis? Y'all gonna have to talk fast. We're down in like 10 minutes. They had a reputation of being alive, but they really were what? They were dead. Just think about this when you read that. When the Bible says they had a reputation of being alive, throw some things at me. What kind of things, let's just bring Sardis to 2023. What kind of things would be true about a congregation that had a reputation of being alive? What kinds of things would you see with this church and say, hey, this church looks alive and thriving? What kind of stuff? Andrew? What was that? Growth in people. Got a lot of people coming. You must be alive. You're doing something right. And I think that's important. What else? A lot of people. A lot of benevolence. A lot of benevolence. A lot of good works. Jesus praises a lot of church for their good works. He says he knows their works. What else? You had a lot of people, a lot of benevolence and good works. What else? 
they they got a lot of programs. <coughs> They're the congregation in town that everybody comes there for things. They host a lot of things. They're known for a lot of things. And all of those things can be good, but in the end, they can just be a shell of our true spiritual condition. Jesus told the Pharisees, you're like whitewashed tombs, Matthew 23, 27, and 28. Outwardly, you appear righteously, but inward, you're full of dead men's what? Bones. You're dead. You're really not alive. The reason why people can be fooled, fooled by this is because people know what they see, but Jesus sees what he knows, and there is a difference. People know what they see. They think, well, hey, this must be a church that's living. Look at all they're doing. Jesus sees what he knows. When Jesus says, I know your works, he's saying, I see deeper than the surface. 1 Samuel 16, 7, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks where? He looks on the heart, and he knows that this church is really not alive. Interesting thing about this church, they're not threatened by any false doctrine or any outward influence of any kind. They just have kind of gone to sleep at the wheel. He doesn't say anything in the first six verses about any problems they have, and yet, yet they're dying. McGuigan does say something interesting in his commentary on this about this church and about churches today. He says, in her peace, that's the church at Sardis, she seems to have drifted into a coma and on into her death. Is the Sardian threat really gone? Are there not those among us who live to war? Is not conflict our baggage? Sometimes the sound of the trumpet and the rumble of the chariots, they make the blood race and the pulse quicken. Debate gives us identity. Conflict is our lifeblood, but peace leaves us bewildered, frustrated, and without identity. This church, just like their city, when there was a war going on, Sardis rose to the occasion, they were successful. In times of peace, they died, and that was what was happening with the church. Sometimes as Christians, when we don't have anything to fight against, we can forget what we're supposed to be fighting for. Paul says, fight the good fight of faith, 1 Timothy 6, 12. They had a time of peace. We pray this in our assemblies. Somebody might pray it this morning. Thank you, God, that we're able to worship you without what? Persecution. That's a good prayer, and we should keep praying that prayer. But God never gives any group of people freedom from persecution so they can take a spiritual nap. <laughs> Well, no persecution, you can just kind of ease on and just take it easy. The freedom from persecution is to further the gospel and do the things that God wants us to do. The church at Sardis have forgotten that, and this, this is what Jesus tells them they have to do to fix it. Wake up, strengthen what remains, remember what they have heard, and then repent. Look at Revelation 3 and notice verse number verse number three. What's going to happen if they don't repent? If you will not wake up and repent, Jesus is going to come like a what? A thief in the night. Yeah. He'll come as a thief to punish them for the things that they've done. Alright, let's just go on to the church of Philadelphia. Revelation 3, 7 through 13. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. To shut. I know you have a little power and that you've kept my word and you have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you because you kept my word about patience and endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him a new name. The name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. My own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What negative thing does Jesus say about the church at Philadelphia? 
nothing. Somebody said, Jesus saved the best church and the worst church for last. Laodicea gets the hardest rebuke from Jesus. And Philadelphia, I mean, they might be in a tie with Smyrna in chapter 2, but they received some of the best praise. Jesus says he has the key to David. He mentions that as he introduces himself. He's the one that opens the door that no man can shut and shuts the door that no man can open. What is the door? What do you think the door is that he says he's opening for these people? What is Jesus opening up for them? Opportunity? Opportunity for what? When Paul talks in the New Testament about pray that God would open a door for me, what is that typically about? An opportunity to do what with the gospel? To spread and share it. Jesus is saying, I can do things and open up doors that nobody can. Now, imagine being in the Roman Empire. You're the only group of people following Jesus Christ. You're Christians, you're faithful. Every door to you in Rome is closed. You can't buy like other people. You don't have the mark. John's going to talk about the mark of the beast, 666-616. You don't have that. You can't do what other people do. You can't go where other people go. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, the first thing John's going to say in chapter 4 and verse 1, there's a door open in heaven. Every door on earth is closed to you. But in heaven, God says, I can open doors for you that men can't see. There still is an opportunity to preach and spread the gospel, even in a place of immense and great persecution. He can do that for you. I said we're going to get through chapter 3, so that's the rest of it. No, we'll talk about it. That's the rest of it. But no, let's talk a little bit about it. They didn't have a lot of power, he says. You don't have a lot of power, but he says, I'm going to strengthen you. I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan. Look at verse 9. Their enemies will come and bow down before their feet. How is that going to happen? When's that coming? I will make them bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. One day, every knee is going to bow before who? And every tongue is going to confess to who? Jesus. But get this, as Christians we reign with Jesus Christ, his victory is ours. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 2, Paul says you will judge the world as Christians. There's a sense in which when the world bows down before Jesus Christ they will also bow down before his people in this regard. In that day, everybody that's ever mocked a Christian and said we were foolish, that we just followed superstition, that we were just dumb, we just went with blind faith. In that day, Jesus will be crowned Lord and our faith will be vindicated. Jesus says, I'm going to make them come down and bow before you. And they'll know that you believe the truth and that I am the truth. And so there'll be a victory for us because we reign with Christ. His victory becomes ours. And that's what the church at Philadelphia was going to, going to experience. Those that didn't repent or those that did, they didn't need to repent in this situation. If they held fast, Jesus promised them a crown and he would make them a pillar in the temple of God. And they would never go out of it. He was going to write a new name on them. This is probably the name referring to them being God's people of the church, the New Jerusalem. Look at Hebrews 12 and verse 22. The church is called the New Jerusalem come down. And John's talking about that here. All right, the last church and probably the most famous of the seven is the church at Laodicea. Verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And I probably don't even have to read these verses. You know these verses, right? He says, I wish that you were either cold or what? Hot, but they were what? Lukewarm. And so Jesus says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Big discussion about the water in that time period. But let me just say this. What does it mean to be spiritually lukewarm? What does that mean? How do you know if you're spiritually lukewarm, by the way? Show up, but you're not doing anything? Okay, what else? I think John describes it well here. 
your view of yourself and God's view of yourself are completely different. You see yourself as being nothing. He sees you as absolutely nothing. Yeah, the church at Laodicea is a rich place. Look at verse 17. I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched. And he says, you're pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And Jesus says, I want you to buy from me so that I can clothe you and treat you properly. The lukewarm person thinks everything's fine when God knows there's a lot wrong. Um, this idea that, well, I'd rather that you were cold or hot in their world. Cold water would have been good for drinking and for digesting, and hot water would have been used for bathing and so for those sorts of purposes. I'm not convinced Jesus is saying, I wish you were just either a weak Christian or a strong Christian, but weak would be better than lukewarm. Jesus is saying, your water has two purposes, and you're good for nothing right now. I want you to figure it out and be faithful. You read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's impressive. Jesus lived 30 years, busiest life of anybody. Not one time in the Gospels has Jesus ever said to be sick. Not one time. Until he gets back to heaven, he looks down on his church and he says, you folks, you make me sick. I'll spew you out of my mouth. You're not producing anything. You're not doing anything. And you think you've got it all figured out. What did the church at Laodicea have right? What did they do good? What did they have? Robert says nothing. Jesus says nothing about it. They think they need nothing. Jesus says you've got nothing. You don't have anything right. Their problem was, at the heart of it, their problem was they let their possessions possess them. Their lives were easy materially, and they just sunk into a spiritual stupor as far as their faithfulness to God. If you look at verse 18, Jesus says, Buy from me garments, let me open up your eyes and clothe you, and let me fulfill the needs that you can't fulfill for yourself. And that's what they need to know. Now, here's the last thing we'll say about the churches in Revelation in chapter 3. Look at chapter 3 and verse 19. How do you know Jesus loves these churches? What does he say in chapter 3 and verse 19? Have you ever received a spanking? Or maybe you gave one of these and you said, this is going to hurt me more than what? Nobody believes that, by the way, when they're receiving it. Nobody believes it. Jesus says, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. Jesus hadn't given up on any of these churches yet. He's given them time. Chapters 4 through 22 is proof of that time. And he wants them to come around and get their act together. Thanks for a good Bible class. Appreciate it.